0: What happens is that it occurs this misalignment, and that has been linked to a series of maladies like poor performance, poor sleep, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, so that little thing about sunrises and sunsets is not just pretty, it's actually important for our health.
1: I'm David Kepron and this is Next Level Experience Design. What does lingerie worn by French women in the late 1800s and Gothic cathedrals have in common? Well, you might say that there was remarkable detail and that the silk lace spun intricate patterns and fine carved stones that was hewn from the hands of masons. Well, that was kind of similar. Or you might say that it was the forms, the compounding curves and the angles, or you might say that neither one was really ever a good fit for human bodies because one was made impossibly too small and one was made so big that it really drove the message home about the distance between you and the divine. Or you might have said none of these. But if you were a particularly hulking six foot two, 285 pound Frenchman living at the same time, you might have said it had everything to do with light. And that's because for most of 1882, this man stood in the window of a second floor building across the road from another building about an hour north of Paris, which happened to be a French lingerie shop. French women would come in all day long. They'd try on the latest French women's underwear, and he would stand there very much out of place. Amidst all these ladies and all this activity, trying to do something that no one had ever done before. And he stood there because it was the very best place to capture what most fascinated him. Because across the street from where he stood in this window, Claude Monet tried to understand light. And with as many as 10 canvases around him, he had moved literally from image to image, looking out the second floor window as light fell across the surface of the Rouen Cathedral. From morning till dusk, he literally would paint. And he did that until probably the end of 1882 when he packed up his canvases, headed back to Giverny in like 1883 or something like that. In all Monet painted 30 different paintings of the exact same thing, each one trying to capture light in like suspended animation. And Monet had painted multiple views of the same thing before, you know, uh, haystacks, for example, come to mind. But these paintings of the Rouen Cathedral were a masterstroke in seeing how light changed our perception of the surroundings. In 1884, he finally finished his series of paintings. And during the previous year, it was said that he used to write letters to his wife and would fall into despair saying, you know, things don't steadily advance, primarily because each day I discover something I hadn't seen the day before. And in the end, he said, I'm trying to do the impossible. Interestingly, years later, the French architect Le Corbusier focused on the same fascination with light, and he framed the issue this way. He said that space and light and order are things that men need just as much as they need bread and a place to sleep. So all of this really brings me to my guest today, who is Mariana Figueroa. Who a few years ago, I saw doing a presentation at an AIA conference um, with someone from the GSA, General Services Administration, on lighting. And I was sat there captivated, I think like Monet, staring at the screen because I was doing it virtually because I was fascinated in trying to understand light. So Mariana is an architect, she's a scientist who researches the effects on light and human health, including alertness and performance. And she's authored numerous scientific articles, just Google search Mariana Figaro, and you'll come up with uh, a lot of Google scientific documents where like literally there are hundreds that are there. Um, She's developed a 24 hour lighting plan to help improve sleep quality in older adults and conducted groundbreaking research on the use of lighting to improve postural stability among older populations. She also has worked with the Navy on lighting in submarines, which is something I want to actually know about. She may not be able to answer the question because she's probably under some secret of, you know, NDA or something like that with the military. But she also used to be, when I met her, she was the light and health program director at the Lighting Research Center for, uh, and a professor at Rensselaer Polytechnical Institute. And she now serves as a professor in Department of Population Health Science and Policy at the ICAM School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. So with all of that, we are going to spend some time trying to understand light. A little bit like Monet. Do you know who Monet is? Are you a Monet f- I'm a Monet fan.
0: Yes, I am a Monet fan.
1: See Now, because he was fascinated with light or just because you happen to like Impressionism?
0: No, I happen to like Impressionism. Um, I actually didn't know that he was fascinated with light, uh, but I'm not surprised he was. In fact, a lot of artists, um, you know, light is extremely important for what they do. And, um, at, you know, it's a, it, it's an amazing thing because light is so incredibly amazing. And yet um, when I did the TedMed Talk is what I said, we take it for granted. Mm. Uh, we all take lighting for granted. Um, and, and in fact in, in the TedMed Talk I mentioned about the story, I want to see if I remember that was like in 2014, but it was like the story of the fish that a big fish come to two young fish and said, um, how's the water today? And the two young fish look look at each other and say, what's water? So, you know, the bottom line is they were surrounded by water. So we're surrounded by light and we don't even pay attention to it. And no, we don't even know how to measure, how to appreciate, how to work with it sometimes. Um, So I think what what, uh, it's fascinating about what we do is that we are really um, exploiting lighting and, and understanding how we can use lighting in many ways that can help people and improve people's lives.
1: It's interesting you say this thing about artists and light. Um, also, I mean, one of my most favorite um, uh, musical theater pieces by Stephen Sondheim is Sunday in the Park with George. And of course that's really about George Seurat. And the, it, there's these amazing songs about you know the light. But also I remember being in architecture school and uh, while I had painted and drawn for years prior to that, you know, I, I think I actually learned the most I ever learned about drawing and painting because my art teacher in like first year studio said, I'm going to teach you how to understand light and draw light. And once you get the drawing of light down, all the rest of it's going to take care of itself. The drawing and stuff, se- you know, and the painting will take care of itself because light and how light falls on form was critical to understanding everything. Yeah. And I, I think it's fa- fascinating this idea you say that we're around it all day long, but we don't really pay any attention to it mostly. No. No.
0: No, I mean, who, who gets into the environment and l- look up at the ceiling to find out where the lighting is coming from? Right. Or, you know, it just, it, to us, it's like, I mean, sometimes I get into spaces and, and the lighting is flickering, or you have different color temperatures of bulbs, one next to the other. And mm. it's like, I can't believe nobody noticed that. I can't believe when they changed the light bulb, they didn't worry about getting the same type of light.
1: Yeah, well, right? it's an issue, and so herein lies. Well, this this is a, a little nice little segue into me meeting you. Well, I mean, I, I followed that lecture, and I think I, I probably contacted you maybe within the same yeah. year, saying, you know, we're yeah. working on a project where we've decided that we're going to own light as a brand differenti- differentiator for this brand. It was Weston, and because Weston was so deeply steeped in biophilic design, it seemed like that was a new thing that no one had really focused on. Although I think everyone collectively agreed that lighting in hotel rooms was is not good. And so we engaged you when you were at the Lighting Research Center uh, to help us understand light, you know, which was which was great. And I think one of the really fascinating things for me and I'd love you to just dig into this for me is understanding light and its relationship to circadian rhythms, or, or this idea of you know circadian photobiology, it's really important, folks. You know um, that you can read Matthew Walker's book, you know Why We Sleep, and that'll scare the crap out of you about why you need to get eight hours of sleep. But one of the things he does talk about in there is he talks about the re- interrelationship between circadian rhythms and your just general sense of well-being and light. So could you just you know give us the, the like you know 101 course you know on why light is important that we understand it and its relationship to circadian rhythms and let's say well-being that's a big subject i know but let's see if we can get it you know get at it
0: <laughs> well um you know I, the way i always start presentations and start talking about lighting is it, it really affects three systems of at least three of our systems. One is our visual system, and that's probably what we relate lighting to. You flip the switch on, you see, you flip it off, you're in darkness, you can't see, and everybody understands that. And then you have the two other systems. One is what we call the perceptual system. And within the perceptual system, it really is things like giving you a sense of where you are in the environment. So we have worked, for example, with horizontal vertical lights that go around door frames bathroom door frames at night and when you get up you have that perceptual cue that would allow you to orient yourself with the environment and that can minimize risk for falls and you know wh- when we work together this is a big issue in hotels for example because you really It's an unfamiliar environment. So you really get up and you're confused. You're in darkness. You don't know where to go. So that gives you that orientation. But the other thing about the perceptual system goes more into the aesthetics and even to um, communicating uh, about the space. So, for example, the lighting in Walmart, for example, is very different than the lighting at a high end store on -hmm. Fifth Avenue because what it's doing is really saying, this is a cheap store. This is an expensive store. The other thing that it gives the message is uh, my business is open. So when you have the lights on, it's like, it's open, come in. And when, you know, you go to a restaurant or you go to a place and the lights are dim or down uh, or off, you think the business is out. So it's not functioning. So that so that's another sort of part of the message and the, the perceptual system that you know we can use, and then the third one, which is really the one we have spent a lot of time working with, it's the circadian system, and we really use circadian system as as a as a general thing because the more we learn about it, we we we're learning that it's it's really what we call a non-visual effect. So it, whatever it is that it's not necessarily um, seeing, even though you share photoreceptors in the eyes with your vision and your you're non-visual, but it really includes the circadian system, but it also includes alertness or like, you know, light is like a cup of coffee, for example. It gives you that acute alerting effect. So in terms of the circadian system, uh, what it does, it maintains you synchronized with your watch, with your external environment. So if you are, for example, in a dark cave for three weeks, you're going to continue to have these circadian rhythms but they're going to run with a period slightly longer than 24 hours so on average about 24.2 hours so what happens is every day you're about 10 to 15 minutes delayed with respect to your watch so once you get out of that cave the sun the the sort of sunrises and sunsets what it does it resets your clock so that it's now running with exactly 24 hours. So now you go with the sunrise and the sunset. So that's really a very important um, part of our lives that we in a way take it for granted because we're going to have sunrises and sunsets every day mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. it's a natural thing that we sort of sink get in sync with that sunrise and sunset but what happens for example with shift workers that get out of the sink with the sunrise and the sunset because they're working when they're supposed to be asleep or they're sleeping when they're supposed to be um working during the daytime um, what happens is that it occurs this misalignment, and that has been linked to a series of maladies like poor performance, poor sleep, diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, so that little thing about sunrises and sunsets is not just pretty, it's actually important for our health.
1: I would mentioned the Why We Sleep book, I think, Matthew Walker, and talking about the importance of sleep. But is it the sun and the cycle of or the changing quality of that natural light over day part that acts as a trigger for melatonin production? Because we always talk about this idea of melatonin, right? And people take it by pills or by others. I know my family are, are big you know, advocates of using melatonin as a sleeping, something to trigger the sleep you know, process. So what's the connection there between light quality in the day and, and over day and the whole idea of melatonin and sleeping.
0: Yeah, it's um it's an interesting connection. So if you think about our sleep wake cycle, right? So let's just focus on sleep. Um so sleep actually it's influenced by two systems, okay? One is your circadian clock. It's giving you an alerting signal during the day and a sleeping signal at night. And then the second thing is what they call your homeostatic sleep pressure. So what that is, is the more time you are awake, the more sleep pressure you accumulate. And that's actually one of the reasons why we drink coffee, because what coffee does, coffee block adenosine receptors in the brain, Mm -hmm. um, which is what you produce when you are accumulating that sleep depth. So it basically, it's masking that sleep Pressure that you're accumulating during the day. Okay. So these two systems have a beautiful relationship. Okay. You are accumulating sleep pressure during the day because you're awake, but then your biological clock is kind of saying, stop pressuring me, giving me this alerting signal during the day so that I can put up with that pressure and I can do what I need to do during the day. So at night, You have a lot of sleep pressure because you've been awake for 16, 18 hours, and then your circadian clock switches and it starts sending you a sleeping signal. So that's a perfect storm. That's why we fall asleep because now we have high sleep pressure. We have our biological clock telling us to go to bed. Now, what happens is this is in sync with sunrises and sunsets because Sunrise is daytime. Sunset is nighttime. And where does melatonin fit there? Melatonin, it's basically a hormone that tells your body it's nighttime. So it starts rising about a couple of hours prior to your normal bedtime. And it's really signaling your biological clock, it's time to switch. It's nighttime. So you Mm -hmm. then switch to that nighttime and you sleep. So what happens is if you sort of misalign those two systems, like you do it when you travel to Europe, for example, your clock is going to tell you to go to bed at a time when you don't have a lot of sleep pressure or you have a lot of sleep pressure, but your biological clock is saying, stop it, I'm going against that sleep pressure. It's not time for you to sleep. And then you lay awake, like trying to fall asleep in Europe when you know <laughs> y- you just can't. Until you there rest- on that. That's right, yeah. until, especially you traveling all over the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so it is really um, the sunrise and the sunset. What it does, it tells the body when it's the right time to produce melatonin. That then tells the body that it's nighttime. That t- tells the body that it's time for you to fall asleep. So when you break that beautiful link, everything gets messed up and that it affects your sleep.
1: So is the is the I know I have like on my computer, I've got the flux, you know, so it it changes over the day to become less red in the uh, or less red in the morning, more amber colored in the evening. Mm-hmm. What is the color rendering index? Right. this so that's CRI. That's that. That's what this is. Right. This idea that light quality is in, in both an in intensity, but also in color and that it changes over the day. Is that important? Well,
0: I mean, color, obviously, um, what happens is your biological clock is more sensitive to blue light, okay? So you need a lot less blue to have an effect on the clock than you need red, for example. Uh, you would need a heck of a lot of light, a red light, to be able to impact your biological clock and not a lot of the blue light, okay? So yes, our clock is tuned to seeing blue light during the day and you have to minimize the amount of blue light at night because you can suppress and stop producing that melatonin and, and remove that darkness signal to your body at night with light or especially with blue light. So yes, there there, there is an importance, but what's interesting enough that nobody pays much attention to, it's the amount it's the intensity of light. And, and, and that's where it brings us to the built environment is the built environment is dark during the day and perhaps too bright during the evening hours. So we ended up muting that light, dark information. And we don't have that. Like you go outside, you can get 100,000 lux in a bright, sunny day. You never get that in the built environment. You you rarely get 300 lux at the eye in the built environment. Mm -hmm. So that is really what's happening. It's that we're not getting that that amount of light. So because of that, now we're trying to compensate with the spectrum or the color of light. Uh, So that if we change a little bit more to blue, it's a little bit more effective because we don't have amount... But if we start changing the attitude and think, how do we bring daylight into the space? How do we increase the amount of light we're being exposed to during the daytime hours? And that's where I think we can make a more positive change to the built environment.
1: So this goes back then to when I first saw you doing this um, presentation with um, someone from the GSA. And I think the focus there a lot was on productivity in the workplace and and sort of corporate interiors, where I know for years we've been focused on the sustainable, you know, the whole sick building syndrome, right? Once we were Mm -hmm. able to close buildings up, well, we took away natural air, and then we said, well, we're going to take away natural light. We're going to just put these blanket ceilings of fluorescent lights in there. And lo and behold, you know, people started feeling not great or sick. The absenteeism was on the rise, but people's productivity was going down. So... What do you do like in in the everyday, in in your practice and consulting world that you work with companies to focus on that as an issue? We've been talking about it for a long time. Is there anything new in that space that like we should know about?
0: Yeah, it's very interesting because every time you talk about light in the built environment, especially in office spaces, um, everybody wants to see the ROI, right? The return on the investment. How am I going to increase productivity and so on? And what, what I, at least I always tell people is, you know, productivity has a lot of facets. Um, and obviously, one of them is how well was, you slept the night before. What I tell people is because I may have had a great night of sleep the night before, but I had a fight with my spouse or I had, you know, my kid annoying me in the morning or something, and I may come to work and not be productive because of that even though I had a great night of sleep. So what I tell people is the one thing we can measure is we can measure how well I'm sleeping day after day after day. And in general, you can clearly see for health and well-being and perhaps for productivity which we don't have the data yet because those are hard data to collect, but that's what everybody wants to eventually have is The better you sleep at night, the more likely you're going to be more productive during the day. Sure. Okay. Notwithstanding the social things. Mm -hmm. So, and you can measure sleep. Sleep is measurable. You can put a wrist actigraphy, which is like a Fitbit, on your wrist, and you can measure your sleep. I'm not sure I trust a lot of the apps that are out there. Um, I had some very interesting experience with uh, sleep apps where there is one app that because I'm working on the computer and I'm, I'm quiet, like, you know, just typing and not moving a lot. The app tells me I sleep 18 hours a day. And I said, I'm a, I'm a, re- I'm a really lucky person. Good
1: for you. Yeah. 18 hours. <laughs>
0: I know. <laughs> and it's really because I'm on the computer probably for 18 hours a day, <laughs> but it is, it is actually very interesting. It's like, it only, I only get up to eat and I go back to sleep according to the app. So it's, a. Uh, so I wouldn't trust much of the apps, but I think that there are devices that we can work with and use to measure sleep. So my recommendation is if we can start measuring sleep in this you know, worker population, I think we can then start linking that better sleep to better productivity
1: at some point. So that's interesting coming from a lighting researcher, right? Lighting scientist, you know, that... Because it's because I asked a question about light and its relation to productivity, and we moved into the sleep space, which I don't have any argument with. I think that is that seems obvious, both in the, like, the, literally the physical, did I get eight hours, and did I have an argument with my spouse, and therefore it disrupts my sort of psycho-emotional, you know, sense of well-being. Um, but so I want I wanted to dig at this idea, though, of wellness and lighting, because, you know, the wellness industry, I think I read some statistics the other day, is that it's like a $4.5 trillion, you know, global industry, right? It's it's a big deal, right? That that's across multiple sectors of industries, but it's it's becoming huge. And we're all talking about eating well and exercising and doing things that seem to be, you know, the right path, but I don't generally see, at least in any of the things that I've read, people talking about lighting environments and and what it's what its interrelationship is to a sense of well being.
0: That's what gets cut in the budget in construction. It's the lighting budget, right? Uh, Nobody is spending. Because I'm going to go back to my first point when we first started. We all take lighting for granted. It's incredible how we take lighting for granted. And what's most interesting about the lighting for wellness and for the circadian system is that, you know, there is no way for me to know where i am in my biological clock okay it's not like when i'm hungry i you know my stomach starts growling and i know i'm hungry when i'm sleepy i start yawning and i know i'm sleepy but i don't know when my biological clock is in sync or out of sync right I, it's kind of like it it doesn't mm. have something that gives me daily updates or anything. Eventually it's going to catch up with me. And eventually like when I travel jet lag, then I do know because I can't sleep. I have no gastrointestinal problems. I can't eat very well. So all these things um, happen, but in general people, well, you know, there's another thing that we don't know very well is how, how adaptable we are to that crappy lighted environment that we live in okay and i think what happens is a lot of people will adjust you know like we eat bad food and you know that's all we have and we're going to live with that and it's the same thing with lighting but then you have certain populations that will be much more affected by that and and these are what we call the fringe populations so you're talking about people that suffer from seasonal depression you're talking about alzheimer's disease patients you're talking about cancer patients, um, hospital, anybody that is hospitalized. So these are people that are weak and that this this is when the lighting could make the biggest difference. But I think there's a lack of knowledge and there's a lack of, of even perception of where you are in terms of the lighted environment. And yet, when you have a bright sunny day in the spring and you go outdoors, it's a marvelous, right sensation. We know it's just amazing. And we don't know what that is. But we feel it.
1: Yeah, that's so true. It's interesting, my wife. um, uh, We've been talking about the subject for a long time, because also we have two young men, two sons who are young men, of course, they're in this cohort of, of people who are on their computers all the time they're in the music business you know they're musicians so they tend to be working at night and working across borders across countries and around the world so they're up to like three o'clock in the morning because they're working with someone in australia and we keep on saying guys you got to get a good night's sleep and by, by the way get off your computers now they were wearing blue blocker lenses for a long time and putting. Filters on their computers. So I think they're pretty tapped in. But just recently, uh, despite the fact that we've been talking about this for a long time, my wife said, you know, she read an article or a study where it talked about that idea of getting outside in the morning and just standing there in the natural yeah. light for like, I don't know, two minutes or something. I forget what the time was, but it says and that will like set your day in place. Now if you're living in cold climates, a little bit more difficult to do um than it's been But open
0: the shades. Well open the shades. Sit by the window, you know, read the newspaper by the window. Do something that you can get close to getting that light. If you know if you if you don't want to buy a new fixture, because that's another alternative, too, is add more lights to your space.
1: So is there um, a difference between light that comes in through a window versus getting it outside?
0: Yes, there is. Um, there is just because, you know, you have some filtering of, of, of certain wavelengths through glass. Um, so, you know, and, and it depends on the type of glass that you have. Um, and you obviously has you have a lot less light because you still, you don't get as much light um, by at a window than you get outdoors, even though you get much more light from a window than you get mm-hmm. from a light in the ceiling, for example. Um, so, but it's better than nothing. It's what I would recommend.
1: And I, I love it. I, I live in a house that happens to have a lot of windows, and we love that quality of being able to have the space filled with light. But what is it? particularly in the quality of light, what is the factor? What is that thing that is, that is happening between the light and your body? What, um, and if I understand previous discussions that we've had, the only way to get whatever it is is to get it through your eyes. Is that, you are. am I on the right mm-hmm.
0: track? Yes, it is, it is light that reaches the back of the eye, so nothing on your skull, nothing on your back of your knee, none of that. It has to be light at the back of the eye Um, And what happens is your biological clock actually has a direct connection to the retina. So it receives direct input from that light in the built environment. And then from there, you receive signals that goes into other parts of the brain, and then it goes to other parts of the body. Um, So it's a direct connection that we have um, with the biological clock. And and you know, like I said, we we tend to be more sensitive. First of all, we need higher amounts of light to affect the biological clock than we need to see. So you can get up in the middle of the night with a night light. You can go use the restroom. It's not going to affect your biological clock because it's low. It's below the threshold for affecting your biological clock, but you can see. So you need more light than what you need to see. So just because you have a lamp on in the space doesn't mean that that lamp is impacting your biological clock. And you're more sensitive to blue. So, you know, the bluish, more bluish it is, the more sensitive you are. And the closest to your eye, the better it is. So all you want, you want bright days, dark nights. Mm. That's the recipe. How are you going to get there? It's up to you. Do I recommend uh, an hour walk every day in the morning after daybreak? Absolutely. By all means, go for it. But like you said, winter months or we have to commute and we can't do it. Um, so get by a window um,
1: or add more lights to the space you're working. So, you know, I hadn't thought about this before or, or thought about even asking the question before, but as we talk about this idea of geography, And I think about like if if you're in like living in the North Pole, you know, the cycles and the length of time that light exposure is available there versus, you know, at the equator um, is very different. Uh, Have have we as humans adapted across those geographies to be able to deal with those light changes? And if so, how? I mean, is that is that, a, is that your world of, of study, yeah, or
0: no? Actually, it's a, it's an interesting question, and, and we have done some work with um, people in Sweden. We actually have measured their light exposure and collected some data on their, you know, happiness during winter months and during summer months, and they are happier in the summer months than they are in the winter months. We also have worked with the uh, State Department and GSA looking at embassies in northern latitudes, so Riga, Latvia, and Iceland. Hmm. Um, so I've been fortunate to go to Iceland in the middle of June and in the middle of December, and you know, guess which one I like better. <laughs> it's, it's an easy guess. But it is it is a little bit creepy because in December, the, 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 the sunrise is not till 1130 in the morning. So it's like you're in darkness until 1130 in the morning, and yet you have to have a normal life. You have to get up, you have to go to bed and so on. So when we interviewed the people in the embassy, it was a very interesting response. So the U.S. citizens that were stationed in Iceland hate it and they were not adjusting to it, and they were having seasonal depression, and the kids were suffering with it, and so on. And then you would ask the people that were born in Iceland, and they said, as long as there's snow in the ground, we're fine, because we know that summer will come, and we'll have long days. So there is clearly some genetic adaptation because you're born and raised Mm. in this kind of weather, somehow you are going to adapt to that. And honestly, I think if you don't adapt, you move out of these countries, right? That's probably what happens. The people that stay there are the ones that are able to put up with that kind of weather. Now, I don't think there has been any studies looking at, do we really have a genetic adaptation? How is it? What is happening in the brain? Uh, We do know that the brain in the biological clock is very flexible. So you can actually change, you know, the, the, the sensitivity of the biological clock based on day length and, you know, obviously based on, on seasons and so on. So I think that we, we clearly can adapt. And I think those that we're seeing with seasonal depression or with any kind of, of more serious conditions, um, those are the people that cannot adapt. And that's when we see those negative effects.
1: You know, we've talked, um, or or I've 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 been familiar with the term forest bathing for a while now. You know, the Japanese practice of, and uh, I wish I actually knew the Japanese term for it. Someone will tell me after this episode. So I'm going to get an email. I just know. Um, if lighting is therefore potentially related to mood, you know, changing your affect, can you simply do the light version of forest bathing and put people in light rooms, you know, and and get them to feel better?
0: well and that's what people that suffer from seasonal depression do unfortunately they don't go into very comfortable light rooms they're giving those really bright uncomfortable light boxes um but that's that's what they use to treat their seasonal depression um so absolutely i think you could and you should have and in fact we talked a little bit with general service administration because we knew that people not a lot of people have access to daylight in the built environment. So what we said is that why don't we give them a light oasis? So this is a specific part in the building where it is for you to go light bath. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a place where you have enough light or you have daylight or you have windows or you have whatever you can give and they can just bring their laptops and sit there and work there for an hour. And it's a way for them to get what they need. But the the whole concept was everybody has the right to have that, Mm. even if you have to tell your boss, I'm going to have a meeting outdoors because I need to get that light. So it's also part of changing the behavior within the organization, that people understand that lighting is so important that just like a coffee break, you need to give them a light break. That's yeah, you need to provide them the opportunity to get that light that they don't get inside their cubicle.
1: Yeah, it sounds um, Steve Jobs, you know, reading about his life, you know, he used to do all his meetings by walking and walking outside, you know, and, and that's and that's where all of his like big brain work was done. And I think that is true. I think there was also a, a great book written probably back in 2015-ish uh, about some of the most creative people in the world and and part of their everyday practice was getting outside and walking you know and being and whether you want to call it communing with nature or whatever but it seems clear to me that that connection to the natural environment is just something that I mean look it's in our dna you know we didn't come from environments that were no. we didn't come, were fully built i think the smart companies who understand that and it's interesting when you think about where typically in those large large corporations where the more high-powered, you know, higher managerial roles were always pushed to the perimeter of the building where they had natural light. But the people who were supposed to be incredibly productive were like in these cu- are indoors in yeah. the cubes in the middle of the space where you don't have any access to natural light. It seems like a strange dichotomy, right? You want a lot of work out of yeah. those people, a lot of productivity, but you're not going to actually give them them an environment well, that.
0: And those managers are never in their offices because they're either in meetings or they're traveling. So you're wasting <laughs> that that real estate yeah. for for what? Just to show that it, it's it's a it's kind of like a hierarchy thing that it's just not it's just if you think about the productivity part, you're absolutely right. It's it, those are the people that need least because they're just not enjoying it or or using that that ability to 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 get daylight.
1: So that's an interesting design principle, right? You know, for those of you who are designing corporate interiors, think about the perimeter being these temporary stations, these landing zones where anybody can sit in the quote unquote corner office, because not because it's a status thing, but because it's a connection to nature and a connection to naturally lit environments, which is really, you know, really obviously important. Uh, I wanted to go back to, you mentioned Alzheimer's, dementia, and breast cancer, sort of all in the same breath. And I know that you've done a lot of writing and, and, you know, been co-authoring a lot of research in that area. Help us understand some of the research that you've done about the, the relationship between lighting conditions and Alzheimer's or dementia, not just, you know, trip hazards or stumbles or, you know, those kinds of things Mm and lighting the floor area better, but the effect of lighting on those folks who have those conditions.
0: Yeah. Um, it's actually a very exciting area. And um, we started, the first big grant we got from NIH was in 2010, and we we have been collecting data since. And, you know, the more I collect the data, the more interested and fascinated I get. Um, So what we're seeing is, well, first of all, um, the Alzheimer's disease patients are really the the sort of like, um, the, the example of what can be done because they're Mm. fragile Um, they're in a very constant light all day right so it's an environment that has dim continuous light day and night so they don't have a robust light dark pattern and obviously they don't have the brain capacity to adapt to that Um, so we're seeing issues like sleep disruption agitation um uh, you know mood disorders, depression, this is all happening with Alzheimer's disease patients in addition to the disease. The
1: disease itself, so, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. So what we're doing is we're just basically providing them with that robust light-dark pattern by changing the lighting and the environment they're spending most of their time. Simple solution, very simple. And we're seeing beautiful results. Like we did it for six months and you see it for six months, it continuously decrease the sleep disturbances, it continuously decrease the mood disturbances, and it continuously decrease the agitation. It's, it's continuous. So in six months, they are getting worse in their disease and we're able to improve sleep, improve mood, and improve cognition with the light exposure. It's, it's just incredible, the results that we're finding. And we're seeing similar things with cancer patients. We're helping them reduce fatigue, reduce depression, Um, we'll work with myeloma transplant patients where we're seeing that we're affecting their immune markers with, with that robust light dark pattern. Um, so it, it, and it fits and it fits with the idea that they're sleeping better. If they're sleeping better, they're feeling better. Now with the Alzheimer's, the most exciting part is that we're now learning that we may not just be treating the, the behavior but we might also be helping them with the disease because there's a lot of new recent work showing that what sleep does, it sleeps, cleans up the debris in the brain that we accumulate during the day.
1: Amyloid plaques for anyone who wants to study That's exactly one
0: of them, that's exactly right. So the hypothesis is that if you don't sleep well, you're not gonna clean up that debris and you're gonna increase the risk of having Alzheimer's disease in the future, especially if you have you know, family history and so on. Right. Um, so by helping them sleep, and that's what we're doing right now is we're starting to look at um, sleep and cognition to see if we're now seeing an improvement in that. And I'm writing proposals now to start doing um, imaging of, of the brains to see if we're actually reducing because we had an animal study that we did that we did show a reduction in the beta amyloid by just giving them a robust light dark pattern compared to keeping the animals in a sort of a, a bland light dark pattern. Mm. So I think that there could be actually impact in the disease itself. We're not there yet, but I think that the theory supports that and that's what we're trying to build the research to be able to show that and i think that will be absolutely amazing if we're able to do that
1: that is really cool i, I think when you say robust light dark pattern do you just mean when it should be light in other words during the day it should be light and bright and blue ish and when it's mm-hmm. when you should be sleeping it should be dark i mean like close blackout curtains whatever it is right and then i said well, yeah go ahead
0: yeah, I was going to say, well, yeah, yes, but it doesn't mean you can't have a nightlight and navigate safely or anything right. like that because your biological clock is less sensitive to that light. So, yes, it has to be dark, um, but again, safely dark, right, so that you can at least navigate in the space and so on. So that's
1: f- hugely interesting to me. Um, One, my mother had severe dementia, Alzheimer's. Um, I've got other family members who are also suffering from dementia. And I'm curious now, I I think back to, you know, where my mom used to sit in that favorite chair of her house and probably for the last two years of her life where uh, she passed away um, February, 2020, the last couple of years of her life in the living room and my parents both lived at home until they passed away and uh, was always dark, despite having very big picture windows out onto the street I used to walk in there, and I used to always be going around turning the lights on. And she <laughs> turning on the lights, yeah. And she'd be going, turn the lights off, you know. And I'd think, I, I oh, know, you know. And and I think now, who knows now? But it is curious, at least to consider the idea that. Uh, even from morning to night, because she was at, not ambulatory really at the end for a long time. She needed you know, assistance to get up from her favorite chair to the bathroom, et cetera, et cetera. But the, con- the condition in the house was pretty dim most of the day. Uh, and so there wasn't a huge variation over day part and the light quality. And I'm, I'm wondering now that you say this, gosh, you know, that would that have, have expedited, you know, her decline? Um, or would you might would you might have been able to hold it off, you know?
0: Yes, and that's what we're looking at so what in in that case, what we're doing is if she sits in that chair and that's where she spends most of the day, we're increasing the light levels right at that chair, right around that chair, so anywhere she looks, she's getting that amount of light, and it doesn't have to be I'm putting a light bulb shining directly in her eye. what it is is just general lighting up lights that are increasing the general light that gives them this this sort of bathe of light yeah. and and that's what we're seeing in impactful it's just it I mean to me it's I think it's a crime that we're not doing this kind of lighting in nursing homes and assisted living facilities I mean it's irresponsible for us not to be doing that I I don't understand I mean I and one of the things that I want to do going to Mount Sinai I think it's 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 a it's a huge um, influence that Mount Sinai can have it, it's really start changing how we do lighting in just nursing homes the sit live living facilities communities I mean you know they talk a lot at Sinai about um, all the projects and all the you know the 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 low-income communities around Mount Sinai and talk about t- working with the city and the state health department and so on. And I said, I'd love to work with them just to tell them, can you just improve the lighting in these places? Mm -hmm. It's a simple solution. We have the technology, LEDs are here. You can do anything you want with LEDs. They're not expensive, they're energy efficient. We have the technology. So if we can't get people out of their homes because it gets to a point like your mom where you know, she can't be going outdoors anymore, you have to bring the light
1: indoors. Yeah. You really have to do that. You mentioned uh, LED lighting, and I have heard, mm-hmm. um, and I agree, there used to be a time where LED lighting was really blue, not particularly attractive. It didn't, the color yeah. the color rendering and indexes weren't really that great.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, but it's better. And
1: it was way expensive, right? I mean, it was a lot of money. And so all of those things not surprisingly, the costs are coming down. Uh, the ability to change color is, is, you know, changing as well. Is there any connection or any concern? Because I've heard people raise the alarms about led lighting and something in these diodes that has a deleterious effect on human biology. Is there, is, is this like fact or fiction? Is, do you know anything that or can you say?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, without any data, it, it's, you know, you can call it either fiction or hypotheses. Um, and I think it could be either one. I, I don't want to dismiss everything because, you know, there might be things that, you know, it, it, there is a hypothesis, for example, that people are talking about that, um, you know, IR is just as important for health, for certain things with oxidative stress and so on. And, um,
1: uh, first of all, IR. You don't have IR. IR, yeah, but in, oh, infrared. Which is infrared.
0: infrared. I'm sorry, yes, which is infrared. Um, you don't have that on LEDs. You used to have that in incandescent, a lot of it, right? Because incandescent, almost everything is infrared and just a little bit of light. That's why there's such an inefficient light source because they emit emit a lot more heat than they emit light. So you have to crank up the power to get the amount of light you need. Right. With LEDs, it's the opposite. You know, They are very efficient, but they don't emit a lot of 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 infrared. So there's a hypothesis that that is actually negative. Um, There's a lot said about the blue light hazard because the LEDs have that peak at blue light. Well, by looking at what they call the spectral power distribution, which is really the energy distribution right over the different wavelengths, by looking at that alone, you can't say that it's blue light hazard just because it has a peak here because what the blue light hazard is, it's really the, the direction, the intensity of that light reaching the back of the eye. So it's point sources. If you're diffusing the LED, like looking at the north sky, for example, the north sky is very bright and very blue, but it's not a blue light hazard because it's diffuse. The sun, on the other hand, is a horrible blue light hazard because it's a huge point source. It's a bright point source. That's why you shouldn't be looking at the sun. Don't look okay? at the sun, people.
1: So just, you know, know, just know. Self. don't look at the sun.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, some people, you tell that and they still do. i not getting into politics, but <laughs> so, so, you know, it it's, uh, it's, so yes, there is the blue light hazard that it peaks at 440, but. Again, you don't want to look directly at a diode because that's really bright. It is, yeah. And that becomes dangerous. But you won't do that because you ha- you'll have an instinct of just looking away or squinting because it's awfully bright. Mm-hmm. So with LEDs, you have to diffuse and you want to avoid looking directly at the source or seeing the source. If you do that, the blue light hazard is minimal. Okay. Okay, so know. that's another issue. And then the third one that, that is a problem with LEDs, and I think the manufacturers are starting to, f- well, I would say they're even more than starting, but that's something that it's been fixed, and I think that still can be fixed a little bit more. It's the flicker. Mm. It is a light source that flickers, and some people do get headaches with flicker, and it's uncomfortable. Um, but they are improving um, the, 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 the the drivers to minimize that kind of flicker.
1: Interesting. Uh, let's talk about submarines. Okay. <laughs> I'm curious because uh, <laughs> in, in, in doing my pre-interview research, I discovered that you were working with, you know, submarines. Um, yes. which is, which is interesting because I'm thinking, okay, that is a scenario where you're in manufactured light, literally, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea. There were other things to be concerned about than giant squids, like not having great light. Right. So, In the in the case of the military, it would seem totally obvious that if you're not surrounding yourself with great light, all these things that we've talked about—productivity, alertness, the ability to react quickly to uh, you know Mm -hmm. an urgent situation—ends up being compromised. So, what happens in the world where you're living, you know, for months on end, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? What are you doing there?
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, this is actually an ideal space for providing good lighting for circadian and for alertness, right? Why? Because you control the 24 hours. And and that's what we care. We care about 24-hour light. We care about light and dark, not just light, but light and dark. So it's always that rhythm of light and dark that it's important for us. And inside a submarine, it's great because you can create a perfect light and dark. Um, But we don't have it, of course. So the reason why we started working with the submarines, is because as you know, they have this very weird 18 hour schedule. And um, it's very hard to entrain to 18 hour schedule because we are 24 hour species. So um, they're constantly sort of just jet lagged in a way. Um, so we worked with the Navy. The first project we did was really looking at how can you change to a 24 hour schedule and how can you deliver a lighting that will help you maintain that synchronization with your watch? Because on a 24 hour schedule, you have three watches of eight hours. Um, but you know, it could be from midnight to 8 AM um, and that midnight to 8 a.m., you're going to do it every day. So you can use lighting so that midnight to 8 a.m. is your daytime hour, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's You're working from midnight to 8 a.m., but your body is telling you it's daytime. So you can work with lighting to do that. So that's what we were working with them. It's really testing that 24-hour schedule and testing whether a light that is delivered during their watch standing was helping them with sleeping off watch and with some performance and and um, you know alertness during the watch. And we did see that two things. 24 hours was better than 18 hours, which we expected. And when you give them that strong signal during the watch that you do see an improvement in uh, their sleep off the watch, they have they are less sleepy during the watch. Uh, performance was pretty much similar for two reasons. One is we couldn't kind of balance the study. uh, So there was a uh, sort of a practice effect that we couldn't get rid of it just because you're underway and you can't really control everything. Um, And I think that these are very well-trained people. So, you know, improving performance of people that are already excelling is really hard. Mm So, you know, uh, so we couldn't see that, but we did see a An impact, at least, on their sleep and then on their alertness. Now, the other very interesting study that we did was actually with uh, Navy SEALs. Um, So we brought Navy SEALs to the lab, and it was an amazing study because we brought them from Guam, which is nine hours ahead, and we brought them to Troy, New York. So what happens with Navy SEALs? They do a lot of nighttime ops. Yeah. So the idea is, if you're bringing them from guam to troy and if you keep them their biological clock in guam time and you do an op at night in troy you're really doing an op at midnight in troy but it's at 9 a.m in guam right so they are doing that op during their daytime so they're high alert right. because it's daytime for them so instead of trying to shift them to troy time what we did is we held them during the trip. We held them in Guam time, and then we did the nighttime op in Troy, and the results were beautiful. That's I sweet. mean, you could see, you could see that they they were held in in Guam. They were doing better in terms of their alertness. Again, we didn't see much on performance, but we did see better mood. We did see it them, you know, sleeping off the duty better so the idea is if i have or if the navy or somebody has an op in i don't know afghanistan they can get people fly people from a a, a different zone right. keep them in that zone bring them in do the op and go back right and that's sort of like an ideal scenario so that was the other area that we've been working and involved with, which is fascinating.
1: Yeah, it seems like a natural thing to do. I mean, as you were describing it, I thought the exact same thing. Well, why don't they just bring someone from, you know, the Southeast Asia region into whatever uh, and, you know, moving people around the world that way to to work on um, military operations. This is really interesting. I, I know that when I traveled or not this past year has been a complete vacuum of travel for everyone, but yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, but I would always fly in if it was a European or Southeast Asian trip um, two days before, you know, and make sure that I'm doing that yeah. so that if I had to do a presentation, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning their time, uh, I wasn't doing it at midnight, you know, or nine nine yeah. p.m. my time or whatever that that change of time was. So, um, yeah. Yeah. so important to do in the research that's coming out now, the things that you're working on now. What are some of the really um, future forward kinds of things that you're looking at, you know, that helps better the human condition?
0: Well, I think that there's actually, um, the work that we have done and all that we have learned with Alzheimer's patients and cancer patients and even submariners and so on, I think we can apply to many different populations. Like, uh, we're starting to look at work with uh, spinal cord injury uh, people. Um, They do have a lot of issues with um, sleep problems depression. So we're looking at helping them with that. We're looking at um, traumatic brain injury uh, patients. That's another group of population that we're very interested in. Um, We're looking at Parkinson's disease and how can you help um, even minimize transition, because a lot of the Parkinson's disease end up with dementia So how do you minimize that transition to dementia by giving them this robust light-dark pattern? So I think that the concept of using light to promote circadian entrainment, improve sleep, reduce uh, depression, all of that can be applied to various populations. But we're also interested in things like we're starting to exploit is things like there's a lot in the literature, which we haven't done, but we're going to start doing. Looking at, um, you know, there's some work looking at uh, green light and reducing pain, um, including migraine. So we're interested in expanding the work on that and trying to see if we can learn a little bit. What kind of green light? Is it really green light? Is there any other type of light that you could be able to do it? Um, we're also, and I'm, I'm very interested in now starting to look more at um, brain and how the brain is changing with that lighting. So um, we see a lot of, you know, not just blue, but red light gives you a very strong alerting stimulus. Okay, it's sort of a, a, a cup of coffee. So now we're starting to look at what happens in the brain. So starting to understand what's going on with brain activities. The other area that we're starting to work too is on um, metabolic diseases. So how can you use lighting to actually help minimize um, metabolic syndrome, such as diabetes and obesity? And I always joke that if I can show you that light can make you skinny, forget about it. I don't need to work anymore. I'm rich. <laughs> so, but, but I think that there is, a, there is a circadian disruption component in that that we're trying to understand and minimize. Um, shift work. I think there's a lot that we can... In fact, I'm going to start working with the World Trade Center cohort that it's at Mount Sinai and start seeing if we can help them minimize some of the issues they're having at this point 20 years later um, with helping them improve their biological clock and improve synchrony and see if we can help with improving sleep and so on. Um, So there's just... uh, 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 just a, an immense amount of opportunities that, um, you know, being in a medical school is just unbelievable. And I think we're going to put lighting on the map. We really are showing that you can make a difference. And hopefully everybody will be embracing that and we'll be changing the way we do lighting in the built environment. That's really my dream.
1: And that's a fabulous place to pause, hit the pause button for now. So Mariana Figaro, is a professor of the Department of Population, Health Science and Policy at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai and a friend who has taught me a lot about lighting. Um, <laughs> and I am so glad that I had to do that AIA credit to maintain my, uh, my architecture license and I clicked on the lighting session that you did <laughs> all those years ago at, at the AIA conference. Um, it's been great talking to you and thank you so much. This has been great.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's good to see you.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Level Experience Design, and please remember to subscribe and share with all your friends wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out notes and links and other information like transcripts on the Next Level Experience Design webpage at simplecast.com. Also, follow me on social at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the information about upcoming shows and information on our guests who every day are taking it to the next level.